what a great day for the church. This is, this is the, the greatest day that the church, the Christian church celebrates and observes is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the ultimate victory. The ultimate victory in human history was that Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. Yeah, you can give it. Yes. Amen. And there's, there's such life to that. But as we come to this day where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we can ask ourselves, why did he have to be murdered? And then why did he have to be raised back to life? So I'll give you a little outline of Christianity and brevity. I'm sure it won't cover everything, but in brevity. And um, it's this, that God created. Most of you are probably familiar with the story. This, this may not be the first time you've ever been to church. If it is, we welcome you, and we're happy that you're here. But God created Adam and Eve, and they were perfect, they were flawless, and they were sinless. And then God said, hey, I'm going to tell you how you ought to do life, but you're going to have an opportunity to do life on your own terms if you want to. But I'm going to warn you up front, if you do life on your own terms, it's not going to work out real well because I'm the creator of life and I know how life works. Well, through deception and temptation, the serpent comes in and Adam and Eve make a choice. They decide they're going to do life on their terms. And you all know how that worked out. It didn't work out very well. And the moment that they sinned, God promised them that they would experience death. And death began to eat away and bring decay into every dimension of their life when they ate of the fruit they were not supposed to eat of. So they chose to do life on their own terms. And so now all of a sudden we have a problem. We have Adam and Eve. They're no longer sinless. They're no longer flawless. They are now sinners. They now have the decay of death eating away in their life in all areas. And they need a savior. But we have a problem with God's justice system. The problem is, really not a problem, but here's how his justice system works. If you are familiar with this term, I think probably everybody's heard this before. Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've probably all heard that, haven't you? That's actually a, um, it, the statement gets beat up a little by people. It's actually a, a beautiful statement of, of justice. It's a justice statement that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So now this, these sinless, flawless, perfect human beings have now died in sin. And God says, I want to redeem them. To redeem means to buy back. They've been sold out to sin and Satan, but God wants to buy them back, wants to redeem them. But since there's this justice system of God, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, by the way, I want to say this, just a little side note. People are always upset about God and his justice. He's mean or he's this or he's that. Uh, But the moment you are treated unjustly, you want justice. You want it. And it's interesting how that works. And only a good judge brings right justice. So the eye for an eye thing works like this. If somebody attacked me, gouged out my eye, they go before the, the, the justice system, and the judge says, hey, we've seen all this. We know they're guilty. We know you lost your eye. But here's going to be our punishment for them. We're going to, like, twist their wrist and sprain their wrist. That'll be their payment. You're going to say, no. No, you're going to all of a sudden start quoting the Bible. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. I lost my invaluable, precious, never-to-be-brought-back-again eyeball, and they're going to get a twisted wrist that's going to hurt them for a week or ten days? No. No, no, no. And so the problem is with God's justice system, and he's, he's very just, he's also merciful, he's the only one that can do it so perfectly, that he has to deal with this situation. So now we have a perfect, flawless, sinless 
man and woman, humanity has fallen. We want to buy them back. But what can buy back a perfect, flawless, sinless human being? Can a frog? Would a frog be a good, would that be an eye for an eye or, or a lamb or a goat or a bull? No. Or, well, we could say, well, how about another human being? Well, there's a problem with that. After Adam and Eve sinned, we all became sinners. And so there's no one on planet Earth at that time who is capable of dying on behalf of a perfect, flawless, sinless person and redeeming them and buying them back until Jesus. In 1 Peter 2.22, the scripture tells us that Jesus had no sin. There's lots of verses that tell us that, but Jesus had no, no sin and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so now, all of a sudden, God clothes himself in a human body, and he's going to redeem and buy back man. He's going to die. He's going to shed his blood. And, and by the way, the blood of bulls and goats would cover sin, but can never remove sin. And so we finally have this perfect sacrifice in Jesus. So we could look at that and say, okay, I get it. We understand why he had to die, but why did he have to rise again? Well, the resurrection is of critical importance to our lives. It really, really matters, the resurrection does. The reason he had to rise again is because it's proof positive that Jesus is who he said he was. He is Emmanuel, God with us. It's proof positive that he is who he said he was. If Jesus was the sinless son of God, he's very God and very man, he is the Son of Man and the Son of God, the scriptures tell us. If he was truly sinless, listen, death couldn't keep him. Because what produces death is sin. And God's not about death, he's all about life. So he wants to bring life to us. It was the, the Bible says at one point that there were people who said, well, I believe if you do this miracle, or this miracle, or this sign, or that sign. We had the same thing happen today. Well, if God's real, then he ought to do this and he ought to do that. You know, I'll believe him if he does this or that. Well, you know what Jesus said? He said, to those people, there's only going to be one sign given to you, the sign of Jonah. Jonah spent three days in the belly of the whale, and then the whale swam up to the beach and vomited him out. Couldn't hold him. Apparently, Jonah wasn't real digestible or something. He couldn't hold him. It upset his stomach. He had to throw it up. The... the Death was just like that with Jesus. The, death couldn't digest Jesus. And one day, death, hell, and the grave had to just vomit Jesus up and say, I can't hold this guy anymore. There's no reason for him to be here. There's no, there's no sin in him. And so death, hell, the grave couldn't hold Jesus. If he would have stayed in the grave... That would have proved positive that he was not sinless. I don't know if you know this or not, but you can read history and you'll find out that Jesus was not the first one who said he was the Messiah. There are many who came along and said, I'm the Messiah. Guess what? They died and they're still in their grave. It's, it's happening. I'm sure there's probably three or four more people on planet Earth right now claiming they're the Messiah. All of you have lived long enough to know of somebody who claimed to be the Messiah in your lifetime. And when they die... They're still in their grave because they weren't sinless. They weren't the Messiah. They weren't what Scripture promised. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, wrapped in human flesh. Not to mention that Jesus declared on multiple occasions, I'm going to die. 
and then I'm going to be raised back to life. It was funny how they missed that. Well, at one point, though, I think Peter got it. Here's Peter's idea when Jesus said, I'm going to die and suffer at the hands of evil people. You know what Peter did? You've got to love the guy, though. He, he's, he's, he's not afraid to, what's the saying, to, to run in where angels fear to tread. <laughs> Peter runs in and pulls Jesus aside and says, that will never happen to you. I love that chapter. It's a long chapter in the Bible. You ever take some time to read it? Earlier, Peter has said in the chapter, when they say, who do people say that I am? People start making guesses. Then Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Wow, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father in heaven. Later in that chapter, Peter's rebuking Jesus. (laughs) He's the only guy in the Bible that got both these uh, comments in the same chapter. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. I thought, wow, we had a big turnaround from, you know, wow, God has revealed this to you. Now you're speaking on behalf of the devil. And so Peter would just run right in. So Jesus was telling him, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again. If you remember the story where Jesus goes in the temple and he cleanses the temple and he drives out the money changers and all of that and, and uh, the, the religious leaders come to him and say, by what authority can you do this? And he said, I'll tell you by what authority I'll do it. You can destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And that'll show you that I have the authority to do this. Now they didn't catch it because they said, this temple took 46 years to build. And you're going to build it in three days, but he wasn't talking about the physical building. He was talking about his body. So let's see what happened. Let's look at John. John 20, 1 through 9. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That disciple's John, by the way. Um, it's, it's odd to us because John wrote this book, and he refers to himself all throughout as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, uh, you know, he doesn't give his name, but his, the book bears his name. And Peter, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. I want to say this honestly. I mean this. I would hope you would, could pat yourself on the chest and say, I am a disciple whom Jesus loves. I am a disciple whom Jesus loves. Because you are. You're a follower of Jesus whom Jesus loves. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we can take care of that today. He's drawing you and wooing you to him. Another little side note, if you'll read the resurrection stories in the Gospels, you'll find out that there's variances in the story. And you'll say to yourself, no, who, who was it Peter and John that ran to the tomb? Or was it just Peter? Was there one angel? Was there two angels? And uh, you can get all bogged down on all that. But I'm going to give you some good news. According to those who investigate crimes and problems, it is not good if four people see an event and they describe it in great detail specifically the same you would say no that should be proof positive no it's not because no four people ever see any event and then recount it exactly the same and so when four people see an event and and recall it exactly the same they say these people got together and planned this they came up with a script and so it's actually more truth it leans to the truth of it when there's variances in the story because that's how we people are but you know what? I think the devil will get you bogged down. 
was it one angel or two? Was it one angel or two? Well, don't worry about that. Here, here's the big part of the story. The grave is empty. That's the big, don't miss that part of the story. The grave is empty. Jesus isn't there. That's the big part of the story. So we read on here and it says, it says, uh, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. John's really good, isn't he? He's loved and he's the best runner. You know, he outruns, he outruns Peter. He outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. You know, I, I could see that. And I think most of us would probably be wired up that way. We'd go in and we'd see that, but it'd almost be like this holy moment, and we weren't for sure what to do. Not Peter. Not Peter. you got to love the guy. It goes on, says this. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. We're not going to pause. We're not going to think about it. We're going to go for it. He was the guy that would cut off the ear. He was the guy who would rebuke Jesus. He was the guy who would jump out of the boat. He, but you know what? He did a lot. So we could beat him up, but hey, the guy's at least going for it. you got to say kudos to a guy who will go for it. So then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' face. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, remember the one whom Jesus loved, the other disciple who's more athletic, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, he saw and what? Believed. He's the only one who believed, according to the, the scripture. We, doubting Thomas, I've been defending him for years. We call him Doubting Thomas. But if you'll read all the gospel stories of the resurrection, when the ladies came to the disciples and the others who were there and told them that they'd seen the Lord and that he had risen, they said, they're crazy people. It says they did not believe, 100% did not believe. You know when they believed? When they saw and then there's one guy who didn't see, Thomas, and he says, I'm not going to believe until I see, which is exactly what the rest of them did, and he's been labeled forever Doubting Thomas. I don't think my, my campaign's working well. He still gets called Doubting Thomas, but they all doubted. It says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Jesus had risen, just as he said he would. And again, the resurrection separates him from all of their would-be messiahs who came before, came after, whose bodies are still in the grave, or if they're alive on earth now, their bodies will be in the grave. Jesus had risen from the dead. We know that that resurrection is critical, confirming that Jesus who is who he said he is. He's the savior of the world, the messiah. But the resurrection also has great impact on us. Now, there's probably a you know, a, a limitless list of things we could talk about, but I only want to talk about two things today, that the resurrection's impact on us. One is we can die to sin and be raised to a new life. Without Jesus, there's no hope. Those of you who love Jesus, you really love Jesus. You're going after God. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. You don't even have to moan or sigh or amen. Just think about this. Do you still struggle with sin? Yeah. I love John's words again. John said, these things have I written to you that you might not sin. The next words out of his mouth, but if you do sin, John knew himself and knew humanity, but if you do sin, we have an advocate, an intercessor, someone who stands before us, before the Father, Jesus, our great high priest. But without Jesus, the best it seems we can do is sin. And here Jesus gives us freedom from sin. We even 
illustrated in water baptism. We say buried with him in baptism. Buried with Jesus in baptism, into death, and raised to newness of life. So we have this, this new life that now stirs inside us. Corinthians tells us that the old is gone, the new has come. Old things have passed away. There's new things in our life. We're now made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that, I don't want you to miss this. You and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been restored to flawless, sinless perfection before the Father. Now, I know that blows you away, as it does me. You have been restored to flawless, sinless perfection before the Father. Because the scripture says this, that Jesus knew no sin, and he was made sin, or our sin was placed upon him, and we were made the righteousness of God in Christ. How more perfect is the righteousness of God? It can't be any more perfect. And that's what you and I are in him. And I don't mind if that blows us away. It should. I don't mind if that boggles our minds. It should. I don't mind if it... If it uh, breaks us out into praise because it should, but we should, we should say thank you. And it's a big deal. The resurrection's a big deal. We can die to sin and be raised to a new life through our relationship with Jesus Christ. That is, there's no other way I see in Scripture but other through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second thing is that physical death now has no hold on us. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, which was Mary and Martha's brother. He goes to the tomb, and Mary and Martha both telling the same thing. Same thing we would have said. If you would have been here, our brother would not have died. If you would have been here, if you would have been here. Because we have these beliefs that God can do certain things. And they had total belief that if Jesus could show up before he died, then all would be well. But he's four days dead now. There was a Jewish superstition that the spirit hovered around the body for three days. It's just my opinion. It makes sense that Jesus said, okay, I'm even going to trump your, your superstition. Four days dead. And so they show up. Jesus shows up. Mary and Martha both telling the same story. And then, then Jesus says to Martha, and it's on, on this overhead in John 11, Jesus said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will what? Live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, I love that whole line there. Everyone, we're living today by believing in Jesus. Anyone who lives by believing in me will never die. And then he has four last words to say to Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? See, eternal life begins the day that we receive Jesus as our Savior. I believe we're all going to live forever, but in Christ, to have heaven as our home, then it begins the day we receive Jesus. We think oftentimes, my eternity will begin when I put off this earth suit, when I die physically. No, eternity, eternal life in Christ began the day you received him. That's when it began. I'm living with eternal life right now. And I hope you are in Christ too right now. Right now. God's all about life. Jesus said, I quote him all the time because it's such a great line. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, this is the Amplified Bible. Jesus said, I have come. Anytime you read I have come, let that catch your attention. That's a big deal when Jesus said, here's one of the reasons I came. Here's why I am here. Here's why I came. Jesus said, I have come, and this is how the Amplified puts it, 
so that you might enjoy, that you might have and enjoy a rich and satisfying life. Who doesn't want that? We all want a rich and satisfying life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have a rich and satisfying life. That was the purpose of his coming. Jesus created life. He knows how to do life. He obviously is full of life. Death couldn't even hold him. And so he's trying to impart to us how to do life because he loves us. A good father, and, and if you had a bad father, I'm, I, I mean that. I'm sorry about that because that's a good father and a good mother so invaluable to life. But a good father and mother is constantly imparting things to their children. What for? So they can have a good life. You've heard it all your life if you've got any age on you. Every parent says, I want my kids to have it better than we had it. And everybody in this room had it pretty good. And we want our kids to even have more. We want them to experience life to the fullest measure. Our Heavenly Father's like that too. That we might have and enjoy a rich and satisfying life. So God's all about life. So what keeps us from enjoying the resurrection life of Jesus? And by the way, I don't want to put that real negative because many and most of you here are enjoying the resurrected life of Jesus. But if you're not, or if you struggle with it every now and then, what, what's, what's the problem? What's, what's the issue? I believe the issue is what I call the Garden of Eden dilemma. The Garden of Eden dilemma comes to every human being and says, are you going to do life on God's terms or on your terms? And we all struggle with that. And some people reject God totally and say, I'm not going to do life on God's terms at all. Other of us come to Jesus, but we still have issues where we say, yeah, I, I, I know Jesus is the giver of life, but I kind of want to do this. And Jesus says, don't do that, but I think I'll have more life over here. If you've ever done that, we all probably have, you don't end up with more life. You end up with less. You say, well, I remember times where I disobeyed the Lord and had, had a really fun time. We've talked about that before. God is more interested in you having an amazing life than a great weekend or a great couple years. He wants you to have an amazing life, a rich and satisfying life, a wholesome, wonderful life. And so the bottom line to this in our life is this drawing of sin. Romans chapter 1, we're not going to read it, but you can jot a little side note there and look at it. Romans chapter 1 basically tells us that there was a time where everybody had the knowledge of God, but decided the knowledge of God wasn't something they wanted to retain. Why? Because they wanted to sin. They wanted to do their own thing. They didn't believe God had a better plan for their life than they had. And so they rejected God and decided to do life on their own terms. And guess what? It doesn't work. And for those, you know, there was a time where they all got off of an ark with Moses and, or, or Noah and the family. And they all had the knowledge of God. But even today, people who don't have the knowledge of God in that system, Romans 1 cries out that all of creation cries out there's a creator. All of creation cries out there's a creator. So no one will stand before God without an excuse because creation cries out there's a creator. The bottom line is this. Am I going to believe Jesus and his ways, or am I going to go my own way? Something we face all the time. And the world's always wanting to steer us away from Jesus. And by the world, I mean the sinful world, the, the sinful culture. Not everything culture is sinful, not everything in the world is sinful, but there, there is an antichrist. By the way, we always think of the antichrist, like the end times. Who's the Antichrist? But if you read the New Testament, Paul said, I think to Timothy, there are already many Antichrists in the world. 
anti-anti-Christ, anti-against. Paul the Apostle was an anti-Christ until he met the resurrected Christ and then became the biggest proponent in the world at that time for Jesus. But he was against Christ at first. And he said there's many antichrists in the world, and they want to push us and steer us away from a walk with God. Do you know there's some who actually believe that Christianity is a dangerous religion? Did you know that? They believe Christianity is a dangerous religion. Now, I'll give them this, that there have been people who claim to be Christians who have done despicable things. Can we all agree with that? I'll even give them this. There are days where you and I who are Christians do things that aren't very Christ-like. Can we give them that? Absolutely. But overall, I will tell you this. If you look over planet Earth, you will find out that those things that were done that were humanitarian and loving and kind and good were almost all generated by fully devoted followers of Jesus. There really is not a problem with having too much Jesus. There's a problem with not having enough Jesus. Some people say, well, you don't want to be too much of a Christian. No, there's never been a problem with us being too much a Christian. I mean, literally as the Bible teaches it, not as we think it might be. Our problems always be not being Christ-like enough. But if you look at the hospitals around the world, if you look at the feeding centers around the world, if you look at the homeless shelters around the world, if you look at even some of the great organizations today who may not be run by Christians now, if you'll go back and read their history, you'll find out they were founded by people who loved Jesus and wanted to bring health and help to the hurting, the broken, and the suffering. Does anybody remember the show that was on several years ago for several years called uh, Extreme Home Makeover? Ty Pennington, Extreme Home Makeover. I would rate the show by this. That was a two-crier, you know. That was a one-crier because they, they were so touching. One year they decided that they were going to do extreme home makeovers for deserving people who were, who were givers, you know, people just gave and gave and gave and gave to their own hurt. They would give their money, their time, their energy, their products, their, their possessions to help the hurting, the broken, and the hopeless. And so I like to pay attention to little soft signals in, in our culture. Remember years ago they said basically, and they still say, you know, America's done with Christianity. And you'll hear me say this one often, but several years ago when America was done with Christianity and nobody cared about Jesus and nobody cared about Christianity, a blatantly overt Christian movie called The War Room came out and was number one over Labor Day weekend in the entire nation. Well, I'm going, well, somebody cares about Christianity then. But I watched this Extreme Home Makeover series. I don't remember how many there was, but we'll just say for example's sake that there was 20 episodes. I was watching because they didn't make it a Christian show, but you'd hear people talk, you'd see the things they had displayed in their home, you would hear where their heart was, and you'd figure out, oh, those people, they love Jesus. And I would say if there was 20 episodes, probably 17 of those that deserved the makeover were Christians. I went, hmm, isn't that interesting? As they searched the United States, the people they found were Christians. Now, there was a Hindu family, and there was a Muslim, fam or a, a Muslim family, and I remember a Buddhist family, and there might have been a couple others. But predominantly, it was Christian people. And I'm not saying other people don't have kind hearts and good hearts, but I just want you to see that... Christianity is not really dangerous at all. The only thing that gets dangerous if we're not Christ-like enough. We need to be more like him. Well, I don't know if you saw this several months ago, but there's a, a PhD student in religion, Timothy Snedeker, and uh, he was a TA, which is a teacher's assistant. You might not know this, but you might spend good money to send your kids to college because you love the professors, and they may be being taught by their assistants. 
you know, that happens a lot. And so he would take over for the professor when he was out, and he would teach, and, and his, his, um, he was getting a, a Ph.D. in religious studies. Now, that's not Christianity, but in religious studies. Christianity would be part of that study, but uh, religious studies. And so here's a guy who's spent years and years and years in religious studies. He's working for his doctorate. And uh, there was a Twitter question that was asked. And it said, if you were dropped 2,000 years back in time with nothing but the knowledge you have now, what would you do? I want you to see Tim's answer. Here's Tim's answer. Easy. I would find and assassinate Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is a guy who's studying for a doctorate in religious studies who is a TA at the University of California in Santa Barbara, and probably will be teaching other people one day in the, in the classroom, in the college. And he said, easy, I would find and assassinate Jesus of Nazareth. I don't think Tim's paid attention to his classes. Because I want to tell Timothy, they did that. But it didn't work. It lasted for about three days. And the grave could not hold him. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. I also think it's interesting how in our culture uh, we deem every life valuable except the life we don't like. Why wouldn't Jesus' life be worthy of something anyway, even if he... You didn't like him. I'm going to go back and, and murder him? Interesting. Already done, my friend Tim, and he has risen. So let us look at the question again. Jesus asked Martha. He said, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? If we do believe that, then the only appropriate response is to follow Jesus. It's the only appropriate response. You'll probably hear me talk about these guys every Easter as long as I can preach an Easter message. But atheists who have come to believe in Jesus. Sir Lionel Luku, who is in the Guinness Book of Rec World Records for 245 consecutive murder acquittals, twice knighted by the Queen of England. He was given the task of examining the resurrection. Now, it's funny, because some people say, well, he, he wasn't there, he doesn't know. Okay, he got acquittals for 245 murderers. Well, I don't know if they were murderers, he, they got acquittals, but in 245 murder cases. I'm going to suspect he wasn't there for any one of them. I don't think he saw it. I think he examined the evidence. He looked at the eyewitnesses. He did all that, and he built a case around an event that he never saw or participated in in any way. And so he used that same skill as an attorney and that same deductive reasoning, and he spent a couple of years researching this, and at the end he said it must much more gracious and glamorous than this, but basically he said this, I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. And you know what he did? Gave his life to Jesus. He spends retirement years going, he's passed away now, going around the world, preaching Jesus to the world. There's a guy named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. I, I had somebody 
say he wasn't an atheist, he was just a backslidden Christian. All I can tell you is this. C.S. Lewis said he was an atheist. And he called himself the reluctant convert. He really wasn't interested in becoming a Christian, but there were issues in the world that just troubled him. And the more he looked at him and studied him and researched him, the more he decided there must be a God. Now that's generic, that there must be a God. But then it whittled down to the Savior of the world has to be Jesus. And if you're not familiar with who C.S. Lewis is, he's the guy probably most famous in our culture for the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and uh, wrote many, many incredible books. And he, guess what? When he decided Jesus is the real deal, he gave his life to him. Lee Strobel, who's alive today, Lee Strobel was an atheist, and he was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. If you've never seen this movie, I would encourage you to see it. It's a Christian movie. Uh, telling about his journey, and uh, Christian movies used to be pretty bad. I used to like their theme, but they were pretty bad. This is a really well-done movie. Um, it's called The Case for Christ, and it's about Lee Strobel's life. Lee Strobel's wife fooled around and got born again. And man, the seriously, that infuriated him. You know, he's a staunch atheist, and so he decides he's going to crush this concept of Jesus intellectually. And so there's a guy at work that he asked, you'll see it in the movie, he said, basically, what's the Achilles heel of Christianity? What, what's the weak point? And what would it be important to crush, to crush Christianity at large? And he said, it's easy, that's the resurrection. If you can prove the resurrection's false, then Christianity crumbles. Which is exactly what Paul said, who was an antichrist, who became a proponent of Jesus. He said, if there's no resurrection, then we're still dead in our sins. And we're without God and we're without hope. And literally, this is my paraphrase, he said, if that's the situation, let's just pack it all up and go home. Because we're just all wasting our time here. But of course, Paul knew Jesus had risen from the dead. He talked to him on multiple occasions, the resurrected Christ. And so Lee Strobel spends two years, travels around the nation, around the globe even, to research, because he's an investigative reporter, so he's going to be fair to the subject, knowing when he begins that he'll crush this thing. (sighs) But he keeps running into problem after problem after problem as a thinking person. And then finally, he believes Jesus has risen from the dead, and he gives his life to Jesus Christ. And has spent the last probably, I don't know how many, 30 years of his life preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel message of Jesus to the world. So for you and I, the question is, do you believe? And if we believe, I I know I believe, but guess what? I'm inspired. I I want to go after God more. I don't want to be satisfied where I'm at. I want to go after God more. I have people say to me sometimes, honestly, they said, you think you can get more of God? I say, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Because, well, if you got God, don't you have all of him? No, you don't. At least I I read this in the scripture. It says that we are to be filled with the measure of, of the fullness of Christ. Why would you say that if there was, that's all you can have is the fullness of the measure of Christ. So we want to keep going after God. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then this is the day for you to do it. Give your life to Jesus. Commit your life to the risen Savior. Can you think about this just as a a thinking person? If you really did what Sir Lionel Luku did, C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, and you come to a conclusion where you go, oh my goodness, I spent over two years of my life researching this, studying this. I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus has risen from the dead. Okay, let's go on to something else. You can't just go on to something else. You're forced with a decision 
What are you going to do with Jesus? Jesus. 